Hello everybody and welcome to this week's episode of the Going Upcast, where this week we just listened to a couple of chapters. That's right, not a whole lot going on in the wide, wide world of ours, but I thought I would just, you know, rattle off them Treasure Island chapters so we can see how Jim Hawkins and the gang are doing. And that's pretty much it for this week. Uh, it's been a, it's been a bit of a quiet week for me and it's, um, been kind of busy at work, so the, the quiet has been, has been very nice. It's been very relaxing and it's sometimes nice to just reconcile with your with your mental acuital self sure that made sense whatever the quiet's been nice that's what i mean to say and uh if you enjoy the noise that i create rather than the quiet that exists in the intermeaning time periods well there's lots of ways you can support the going upcast you can go to goingupcast.com forward slash store and buy yourself a mystery book or a customized reading of your choice or you can go to patreon.com forward slash going upcast um, also, this past week, Aragon finally launched. There's going to be a new chapter of that every day for, from now until, oh man, I mean, for the foreseeable future, because there's a, it's a fairly beefy book. It's almost 500 pages. Uh, there's, there's a lot of chapters. There's like, like four pages of this book are just the list names of the chapters. So in the event that a chapter is like ludicrously short, there'll be two chapters that day. Like I've got a chapter coming up here that's honest to God, like four minutes long. So there will be two chapters that day. I'm not going to short sheet you guys like that. Um, that's kind of that's kind of where I'm at involving that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, I hope you guys like these episodes, these chapters of um, Treasure Island. And uh, I think for the sake of ease and for listening, it's just going to kind of flow from one strain to the other um, with just a little bit of a little bit of song in, in between. So yes, let's get started with this piratey filled adventure. to do welcome back to treasure island it is time to reconvene with hawkins and, and the gang old old jimmer jimmer b hawkins as uh, his friends call him anyway chapter 10 the voyage all that night we were in a great bustle getting things stowed in their place and boatfuls of the squire's friends mr blandley and the like coming off to wish him a good voyage and a safe return we never had a night of the Admiral Benbow when I had half the work and I was dog-tired when, a little before dawn, the boatswain sounded his pipe and the crew began to man the capstan bars. I might have been twice as weary, yet I could not have left the deck. All was so new and interesting to me. The brief commands, the shrill note of the whistles, the men bustling to their places and the glimmer of the ship's lanterns. Um, now, barbecue, tip us a stave, cried one voice. The old one, cried another. Oh, I might. Oh, that's Long John. Oh, I might, said Long John, who was standing by with his crutch under his arm and at once broke out in the air with words I knew so well. Fifteen men on the dead man's chest, and then the whole crew bore chorus, yo-ho-ho, in a bottle around. And at the third ho, drove the bars before them with a will. Even at that exciting moment, it carried me back to the old Admiral Benbow in a second, and I seemed to hear the voice of the captain piping in the chorus. But soon the anchor was shored up, soon it was hanging, dripping at the bows, soon the sails began to draw, and the land and shipping to flit on or flip by on either side before I could lie down to snatch an hour of slumber on the Hispaniola um, had begun her voyage to the Isle of Treasure German I'm not going to relate that voyage in detail oh well what's the, what's the point it was fairly prosperous it was alright it, it was all right. the ship proved to be a good ship the crew were capable seamen and the captain thoroughly understood his business but before we came to the l length of Treasure Island, 
two or three things happened of which to be uh, which require to be known. Mr. Arrow, first of all, turned out even worse than the captain had feared. He had no command among the men. The people did what they pleased with him. But that was by no means the worst of it, for after a day or two at sea, he began to appear on deck with hazy eye, red cheeks, stuttering tongue, and other marks of drunkenness. Time after time, he was ordered to below in disgrace. Sometimes he fell and cut himself. Sometimes he lay all day long in his little bunk at one side, um, at one side of the company. Companion. At one side of the companion. Sometimes he lay all day long in his little bunk at one side of the companion. I don't know what that's trying to say. Sometimes for a day or two, he would almost be sober and attend to his work, at least passably. In the meantime, we could never make out where he got the drink. That was the ship's mystery. Watched him as we pleased. We could do nothing to solve it. And when we asked him to his face, he would only laugh if he were drunk. And if he were sober, deny solemnly that he ever tasted anything but water. Well, what a ship. He was not only a use, uh, not only useless as an officer and a bad influence amongst the men, but it was plain that at this rate he must soon kill himself outright, so nobody much surprised, nor very sorry, when one dark night with a head sea he disappeared entirely and was seen no more. Overboard, said the captain. Well, gentlemen, that saves us the trouble of putting him in irons. But there we were without a mate, and it was necessary, of course, to advance one of the men. Boatswain Job Anderson was the likeliest man aboard, and though he kept his old title, he served in a way as mate. Mr. Trelawney had followed the sea, um, and his knowledge made him very useful, for he often took a watch himself in easy weather. And the coxswain, Israel Hands, was careful, wily, old, experienced seaman who could be trusted in a pinch with almost anything. He was a great confidant of Long John Silver, and so the mention of his name leads me to, on to speak of our ship's cook, Barbecue, as the men called him. Aboard the ship, he carried his crutch by lanyards round his neck uh, to have both hands as free as possible. It was something to see him wedge the foot of the crutch against the bulkhead and, prop, and propped against it, yielding to every movement of the ship, get on with his cooking like some someone safe ashore. Still more strange was it to see him in the heaviest of weather across the deck. He had a line or two rigged up to help him across the widest space, Long John's earrings, they were called, and he would hand himself from one place to another, now, uh, now using the crutch, now, um, now trailing alongside it by a lanyard, and quickly another man, as quickly as another man could walk. Yet some of the men who sailed with him before uh, expressed their pity to see him so reduced. He's not so common man, Barbecue, said the coxswain to me. He had a good schooling in his young days and could speak like a book when so minded and brave. A lion's nothing aside, Long John. I seen them grapple four and knock their heads together. Him, unarmed. All the crew respected and even obeyed him. He had a way of talking to each and doing everybody some particular service. To me, he was unwearingly kind and always glad to see me in the galley, which he kept as clean as a new pin. The dishes hanging up burnished and his parrot in a cage in one corner. Come away, Hawkins, he, he would say. Um, come, and have an yawn, uh, come and have a yawn with John. Nobody no more welcome than yourself, my son. Sit you down here the news. Here's Captain Flint. Call my parent Captain Flint after the famous buccaneer. Here's Captain Flint preceding success to our voyage. What are you, Captain? The parrot would say with great rapidity, Pieces of eight, pieces of eight, right? pieces of eight. Till you wondered that it was not out of breath, or till John threw its handkerchief over the cage. That bird, he'd say, is maybe 200 years old, Hawkins. They live forever, mostly. If anybody's seen more wickedness, it must be the devil himself. He sailed with England, the great Captain England, the pirate. She sailed in Madagascar, a Malabar, and Suriname, and Providence, and Portobello. She was under fishing up the, the wrecked pot light ships. And she learned of them, Pisces I, and a little wonder, 350,000 of them walking. She was at the boarding of the Viceroy to the Indies at Agawa, she was. And to look at you, to think she was a baby. 
But you smell the pot on you, Captain. Stand by to go about. The parrot would scream. Oh, she's a handsome craft, she is. Cook would say, giving her sugar from his pocket. And then the bird would peck at the bars and swear straight on. Past belief for wickedness. Eh, John would add. You can't touch pitch and not be mucked, lad. Here, this poor isn't Bertamont's wearing blue fire. And none the wiser, you may lie to that. She would swear the same in a manner of speaking before the chaplain. And John would touch his forelock with a solemn way he had that made me think he was the best of men. The fuck was any of those words I just said? I don't know. In the meantime, the squire and Captain Smalley were still on pretty distant terms with one another. The squire made no bones about the matter. He despised the captain. Captain, on his part, never spoke, uh, but when he was spoken to, and then sharp and short and dry and not a word wasted. He owned, when driven into a corner, that he seemed to have been in the wrong about the crew, that some of them were as brisk as he wanted to see, and all had behaved fairly well. As for the ship, he had taken a downright fancy to her. She'll lay a port nearer the wind than a man has a right to expect of his own married wife, sir, but he would always add, Oh, fuck. Ah, uh, hold on. I uh, didn't even think about that. <laughs> That's not going to make sense in the audio. Anyway. <laughs> That's totally fine. Just going to blow right past her. But, he would add, All I say is we're not home again, and I don't like this cruise. The squire at this would turn away and march up and down the deck, chin into the air. Try for more of that, man, he would say, and I shall explode. We had some heavy weather, which only proved the qualities of the Hispaniola. I don't know why that word's on all caps. It seems an unnecessary, um, statement. Hispaniola! Every man on board seemed well content, and they must have been hard to please if they had been otherwise, for it is my belief that there was never a ship's company so spoiled since Noah put to sea. Double grog was going on the least excuse. There was duff on odd days, and as for instance, if the squire heard it was any man's birthday, and always a barrel of apples standing broached in the waist for anyone to help themselves that had a fancy. Never knew good come of it yet, the captain said to Dr. Livesey. Spoil forecast hands, make devils, that's my belief. But good did come of the apple barrel, as you shall hear, for if it had not been for that, we should have had no note of warning, and all might have perished by the hand of treachery. This was how it came about. We had run up the trades to get the wind off the island we were after. I'm not allowed to be more plain. And now we were running down for it with a bright lookout day and night. It was about the last day of our outward voyage by the largest computation. Sometime that night, or at the latest before noon on the morrow, we should sight of the treasure island. We were heading south-southwest and had a steady breeze, a beam, and a quiet sea. The Hispaniola rolled steadily, dripping her bow sprit now, and then with a whiff of spray. Bowsprit? Sure. All was drawing a low and aloft. Everyone was in their bravest spirits because we were now so near an end of the first part of our adventure. There's like 100 pages left and they're almost at Treasure Island. Like, the Voyage 2 is like 90% of most of these movies. So what the hell is this book of... Now, just before sundown, when all my work was over... Also, like... In Mob of Treasure Island, fucking Mr. Arrow is... Like a good dude. In Treasure Planet, Mr. Arrow's a good dude. But in this, he's a drunken shit dick and he just falls off the boat and dies? That's it? Mr. Arrow's like a footnote in this story. Why was he changed? And all of those things. Why not just have him be a terrible person? Huh. Maybe we'll find out, but that's curious to me. I'm sitting here being like, this doesn't cotton at all to my understanding of the story but that's fine 
Now, just after sundown, when all my work was over and I was on my way to watch the berth, it occurred to me that I should have liked an apple. I ran on deck. The watch was all forward looking out for the island. The man at the helm was watching the luff in the sail and whistling away gently to himself. And that was the only sound excepting the swish of the sea against the bows and around the sides of the ship. In I got bodily into the air... In I got bodily into the apple barrel. In I got bodily into the apple barrel. And found there was scarce an apple left. But sitting down there in the dark, what with the sound of the waters and the rocking movement of the ship, I had either fallen asleep or was on the point of doing so when a heavy man sat down with a rash with rather a clash close by. The barrel shook as it, he leaned his shoulder against it. I was about to jump up when the man began to speak. It was Silver's voice. Before I had heard a dozen words, I would not have shown myself for all the world, but lay there trembling, listening. In, extreme, and, uh, in the extreme of fear and curiosity, for from these dozen words, I understood that the lives of all the honest men aboard depended upon me alone. Me alone, I say. Ooh. I wonder what's going to happen. Chapter 11 What I heard in the apple barrel No, not I, said Silver Flint was captain I was quartermaster, long my timber leg Same broadside, I lost me leg Old Pew lost his deadlights It was a master surgeon, him that amputated me Out of college and all Latin by bucket and whatnot. But he hanged like a dog and sun dried like the rest A Corsair castle that was Robert's man, that was, and come of changing their names to the ship, Royal Fortune and so on. Now what a ship was christened, so let us stay, I say. So it was with the Cassandra, and us brought us safe home from Malabar after England took the viceroy of the Indies. And so it was with the old warrior's Flint's old ship, as I was seen a muck with red blood and fit to sink with gold. Ah, cried another voice that was the youngest hand on board and evidently full of admiration. He was the flower of the flock, was Flint. Davies was a good man too, by all accounts, said Silver. I never sailed along with him. First with England, then with Flint. That's my story. And now here on my own account, in a manner of speaking. I laid by 900 safe from England, and 2,000 after Flint. That ain't bad for a man before the mast. All safe and bank. Taint earnest standing now. The savings it does, you may lay it out. So where's all England's men now? Oh, no. Where's Flint's? Well, most of them here are born. Glad to get the duff. Been begging before that, some of them. Oh, pew. As he lost his sight and might have thought shame, spent twelve hundred pounds a year, like a lord in parliament. Where's he now? Well, he's dead now and under arches. But for two years before that, shivering my timbers, the man was starving. He begged, he stole, he cut throats, and he starved all that by the powers. By the powers. Ain't much use after all, said the young seaman. Tain't much use for fools, you laboured it. That or nothing, cried Silver. But now you look here, you're young you are, but you're as smart as paint. I'll see that when you set your eyes on you, and I'll talk to you like a man. You may imagine how I felt when I heard this abominable rogue addressing an oh. You may imagine how I felt when I heard this abominable rogue addressing an other in the very same words of flattery he had used on um he had used to myself. How about you he used on me? Used to myself. God damn it. I think if I had been able if I had been able to think I would have uh, would have killed him through the barrel. I think if I had been able that I would have killed him through the barrel. For what? Flattering somebody else in the same style? Anyway. Meantime, he ran on, little supposing he was overheard. Here it is about gentlemen of fortune. They live rough. They live, they risk swinging. But they eat, drink like fighting cocks. When the cruise is done, why? It's hundreds of pounds instead of hundreds of fallings in their pockets. Now the most goes for the rum in a good fling and to see again in their shirts. That's not the course I like. I puts it all away, some here, some there, and none too much anyways, by reason of suspicion. 
I'm 50, mark you, once back from this cruise, I set up gentlemen in earnest. Time enough too, says you. Ah, oh, but I've lived easy in the meantime, never denying myself of nothing the heart desires. German. And I slept soft and ate daintily all my dice, but went at sea. How did I to be in? Before the mask, like you. Well, said the other, but all the money's gone now, ain't it? You daren't show your face in Bristol after this. Why, where might you suppose it was? Asked Silver derisively. At Bristol in banks and places. Answered, um, his, um, at Bristol in banks and places. Answered his companion. It were, said the cook. It were when we weighed anchor. But my old missus has it all by now. And despite glasses old, lacing goodwill and rigging, the old girl's off to meet me. I would tell you where, for I trust you, but would make jealousy among the mates. And can you trust your missus? Asked the others. Gentlemen of fortune, returned the cook. Usually trust amongst themselves, and right they are, you may lay to it. But I have a way with me, I have. When my mate brings a ship a slip on his cable, one has known me, I mean, it won't be in the same world with old John. But that was some of that feared pew, and some that were feared of Flint, but Flint his own self was feared of me. Feared he was, and proud. They were the roughest crew afloat. It was Flint's. The devil himself would have feared to go to sea with him. Well, now I tell you, I'm no boasting man, but I'll see in yourself how easy I keep a company. When I was quartermaster, Limes wasn't word for Flint's old buccaneers. You may be sure yourself in old John's ship. Well, I'll tell you now, replied the lad. I didn't have a quarter like jo like the job till I had this talk with you, John. But there's my hand on it now. And a bravest lad you were, and smart too, answered Silver, shaking hands so heartily that all the barrel shook. And a finer figurehead for a gentleman of fortune I never clapped me eyes on. By this time, I had begun to understand the meaning of their terms. By a, quote, Gentlemen of fortune, they plainly meant neither more nor less than a common pirate. The little scene I had overheard was the last act of the corruption of this one of the honest hands, perhaps the last one left aboard. But on this point, I was soon to be relieved, for Silver gave a little whistle, and a third man strolled up and sat down by the party. Dick Square, said uh, Silver. Oh, I know Dick was square, returned a voice of the coxswain, Israel Hans. He's no fool as Dick. But I uh, turned his quid and spat. But look here, he went on. Here's what I know. I want to know, Barbecue. How long are we gonna stand off and on this blessed bumboat? I uh, must have Captain Smollett. He hazed me long enough by thunder. I want to go to that cabin, I do. I want their pickles and wines and that. Israel, said Silver. Your head ain't much on account, nor was ever. But you're able to hear, I reckon, leastways. Your ears are big enough. Now here's what I want to say. You'll birth forward and you'll live hard. You'll speak soft and you'll keep sober till I give the word. And you may lay to that, my son. Well, I don't say no, do I? Growled the coxswain. What I say is when. That's what I'll say. When? By the powers! Cried Silver. Well, now, if you want to know, I'll tell you when. The last moment I can manage. And that's when. Here's the first-rate seaman, Captain Smollett, sails the blessed ship for us. Here's the squire and the doctor with a map and such. I don't know where it is, do I? No more than you, says you. Well then, I mean the squine doctor shall find the stuff and help us to get aboard by the powers. Then we'll see. If I was sure of you all, sons of a double Dutchman, or of Captain Smollett navigators halfway back again before I struck. Why, we're all seamen aboard here, I should think, said the lad Dick. We're all forecast hands, you mean, snaps over. We can steer a course, but who's to set one? That's all you gentlemen spit on, first and last. If I had my way, I'd have Captain Smollett work for us back into the trades, at least. Then we'd have no blessed miscalculations and spoonful of a water day. But I know the sort of you are. I'll finish with them at the island, as soon as the blunts are born, and a pity it is. But you'll never happen till you're drunk. Split my sides. 
I have a sick heart to sail with the likes of you. Easy all along, John, cried Israel. Who's a-crossing you? Why, how many tall ships do you think, now that I've seen you lay aboard? How many brisk lads drawing in the sun at execution dock, cried Silver. And all for the same hurry and hurry and hurry. You hear me? I've seen a thing or two at sea, I have. But if only you lay your course and a point no windward, your carriage would rise, you would. But not you. I know you. You have your mouth full of rum tomorrow and go hang. Everybody knows you were the kind of a chaplain, John. But there's others as good as hand and steer as well as you, said Israel. They liked a bit of fun, they did. They wasn't so high and dry know-how, but they took their fling like jolly companions, every one. So, said Silver, well, and where are they now? Pew was that sort, and he died a beggar man. Flint was, and he died of rum at Savannah. Ah, oh, they was a sweet crew, they was. Only, where are they now? But, asked Dick. Oh, my lips are getting chipped. My lips are getting chipped, I just... I just moisten those bad boys. There we go. Anyway, uh, but, asked Dick, when we do lay him athwart, what are we to do with him anyhow? As a man for me, cried the cook admiringly. That's what I call business. Well, what were you to think? Put my shore like maroons. That would have been England's way. Cut him down like that much pork. That would have been Flint's or Billy Bones. Billy was a man for that, said Ariel. Dead men don't buy, he says. Well, he's dead now himself. He knows the longest short of an hour. If there were a rougher hand come to port, it was Billy. Right you are, said Silver. Rough and ready, but mark you here. I'm an easy man. I'm a quite the gentleman, says you. But this time it's serious. Duty is duty, mates. I'll give my vote. Death. When I'm in Parliament and riding in my coach, I don't want none of these sea lawyers in a cabin are coming home. Unlooked for, look uh, like the devil at prayer. Wait, is what I say. But when the time comes, why, well, let her rip. John, cried the coxswain, you're a man. So you'll say so, Israel, when you see, said Cyril. Only one thing I claim. I claim Trelawney. I'll wring his calf's head off his body with these hands, Dick. He had to break enough. You just jump up like a street lad, get me an apple to whip my pop like. You may fancy, you may fancy the terror I was in. Should have left down rent for it if I had found the strength, but my limbs and heart alike misgave. I heard Dick begin to rise. Then someone seemingly stopped him, and the voice of Hans exclaimed, Oh, stow that! Don't you get sucking on that bilge, John! Let's have a go around. Dick. Oh. Oh, stow that! Don't you get sucking off that bilge, John! Let's go have a rum. Dick, said Silver, I trust you. I've a gauge in the keg mind. There's the key. Fill a pankin and bring it up. Terrified as I was, I could not help thinking to myself that this must have been how Mr. Arrow got the strong waters that destroyed him. Dick was gone, but a little while, and during his absence, Israel spoke straight on in the cook's ear. It was but a word or two that I could catch, and yet I gathered some important news, for besides other scraps that tended to the same purpose, this whole clause was audible. Not alone the man of them till joined. Hence, there were still faithful men on board. Uh, when Dick returned, one after another of the trio took to the pannikin and drank. One to luck, and another uh, with a, Here's to old Flint, and Silver himself sang in a kind of song, Here's to ourselves, and hold your luff, pretty prizes and plenty of duff. Just when the sword of brightness fell upon me in the barrel, looking up, I found the moon had risen and was silvering the mizzen top, shining white on the luff in the foresail. And almost at the same time, the voice of the lookout shouted, Land ho! We're already there? Fuck, this book moves quickly. Chapter 12 Council of. <laughs> 
There was a great rush of feet across the deck, and I could hear people tumbling up from the cabin in the forecastle. Slipping in an instant outside my barrel, I dived behind the foresail, made a double towards the stern, and came out upon the open deck in time to join Hunter and Dr. Livesey in a rush for the weather bow. There all the hands had already congregated. A belt of fog had lifted almost simultaneously with the appearance of the moon. Away to the southwest of us, we saw two low hills and a couple of miles apart, rising behind one of them a third higher hill, whose peak was still buried in fog. All three seemed sharp and conical in figure. So much I saw almost in a dream, for I had not yet recovered from my horrid fear of a minute or two before. Then I heard the voice of Captain Small issuing orders. The Hispaniola was laid a couple of points nearer the wind, and now sailed a course that would just clear the island on the east. And now, men, said the captain, when all was sheeted home, has any one of you ever seen that land ahead? I have, sir, said Silver. I watered there with a trader I was cooking. The anchorage is on the south behind the islet, I fancy, asked the captain. Yes, sir. Skeleton Island, they call it. We're, uh, it were a main place for pirate once, and a hand we had on board knowed all their names for it. That hill to the north they call a foremast hill. The three hills in the run on the southward, four main and mizzen, sir. But the main, that big one with the cloud on it, they usually calls it the spyglass, by reason of a lookout they kept when they was talking of anchorage cleaning. For it was there they cleaned their ships, sir, asking your pardon. I have a chart here says Captain Smollett. See if that's the place. Long John eyes burned in his head as he looked. Uh, took the chart, but by the fresh look of the paper, he knew he was doomed to disappointment. This was not the map we found in Billy Bones' chest, but an accurate copy, complete in all things, names, heights, soundings, with a single exception of the red crosses and the written notes. Sharp as must have been his annoyance, uh, Silver had the strength of mind to hide it. Yes, sir, he said. This is the spot, to be sure. Very prettily drawn out. Who might have done that, I wonder? Pirates are too ignorant, I reckon. Aye, here it is. Captain Kidd's anchorage. Just the name my shipmates called it. There's a strong current rise along the south, and then away norward up the west coast. Right you was, sir, he says. Uh, to haul your way to keep the weather to the island. Leastways, if such was your intention as to enter and careen, there ain't no better place for that than in these waters. Thank you, my man. <laughs> Pound it. Pound it home, boy. Yay! Says Captain Smollett. I'll ask you later to give us a help. You may go. German. I was surprised at the coolness with which John avowed his knowledge of the island, and I own I was, and I own I was half frightened when I saw him drawing nearer to myself. He did not know to be sure that I overheard his counsel from the apple barrel. And yet I had by this time taken such a horror of his cruelty, duplicity, and the power that I could scarce conceal a shudder when he laid his hand upon my arm. Ah, oh, he said, here, this here's a sweet spot, this island. A sweet spot for a lad to get ashore on. You'll bathe, you'll climb trees, you'll hunt goats, you will. And you'll get aloft on them hills like a goat yourself. Well, it makes me young again. I was going to forget my timber leg, I was. It was a pleasant thing to be young and have ten toes, and you may lay that. When you want to go on a bit of explore, you just ask old John, and he'll put up a snack for you to take along. What a fucking good... What a good guy. He's, he's, giving, he's giving Jim a snack to take along for his adventures. <laughs> oh, Long John. Oh, Longy, Longy. Jimmy, Jim, Jim, Jim. I'm not Jimmy, Jim, 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 Jim. He's Jimmy, Jim, 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 Jim. Jim, yes, Captain. Jim, Jim, Jimmy, Jim, Jim, Jim. Jim hasn't said a word in a while. I mean, he's the narrator, so it, you know, kind of ekes on by, but he hasn't said a word in a minute. Let's see here. And then clapping me in the friendliest way upon the shoulder, he hobbled forward and went below. 
Patting me in the friendliest way upon the shoulder. Is how you... Ha-ha! <laughs> no? I don't... I'm gonna try it on the other shoulder. Ha-ha! <laughs> I've just hurt myself. <laughs> Captain Smollett, the squire, and Dr. Livesey were all talking together on the quarter deck, and anxious as I was to tell them my story, I durst not interrupt them openly. While I was still casting about in my thoughts to find some probable excuse, Dr. Livesey called me to his side. He had left his pipe below, and being a slave to tobacco had meant that I should fetch it. But as soon as I was near enough to speak and not be overheard, I broke immediately. D doctor let me speak. Get the captain and the squire down in the cabin, and then make some pretense to send for me. I have terrible news! The doctor changed countenance a little, but the next moment he was master of himself. Um, doctor. Oh, yes. Thank you, Jim, he said quite loud. That was all I wanted to know, as if he had asked me the question. And with that, he turned on his heel and rejoined the other two. They spoke together for a little, though none of them startled or raised his voice, or so much as whistled. It was plain enough that Dr. Livesey had communicated my request, but the next thing I heard was the captain giving an order to Job Anderson, and all the hands were piped on deck. My lads, said Captain Smollett, I have a word to say to you. This land that we have sighted is the place we have been sailing for. Mr. Trelawney, being a very open-handed gentleman, as we all know, has just asked me a word or two, and I, as and as I was able to tell him that every man on board has done his duty, allowing a loft, as I never asked to see done better, why he and I and the doctor are going below to the cabin to drink your health and luck, and you'll have grog served out to uh, you to drink our health and luck. I'll tell you what I think of this. I think it is handsome, and if you think as I do, you'll give a good sea cheer for the gentleman that does it. The cheer followed, as was the matter, of course, but it rang out so full and hearty that I confess I could hardly believe these the same men were plotting for our blood. One more cheer for Captain Smollett, cried Long John when the first had subsided, and this was also given with a will. And the top of that, the three gentlemen went below, and not long after, word was sent for that Jim Hawkins was wanted in the cabin. I found them all three seated around a table, a bottle of Spanish wine and some raisins before them. What a weird... And the doctor smoking away with his wig in his lap, and that I knew was a sign that he was agitated. The stern window was open, for it was a warm night, and you could see the moon shining behind the ship's wake. Oh, the squire. What did the squire sound like? It's been a minute. The squire sounded like... I think he was just like an old man, wasn't he? Now, Hawkins, said the squire, you have something to say? Speak up. I did as I was bid, and as short as I could make of it, told the whole details of Silver's conversation. Nobody interrupted me till I was done. Nor did any of the three of them make so much as a movement, but kept their eyes upon my face from the first to the last. Jim, said Dr. Lively, take a seat. And they made me sit down at the table beside them, poured me out a glass of wine, filled my hand with raisins, and all three, one after the other, and each with a bow, drank my good health and their service to me for my luck and courage. Uh, now, Captain, said the squire, you were right and I was wrong. I owe myself an ass, and I await your I own myself an ass, and I await your orders. No more an ass than I, sir, returned the captain. I never heard of a crew that meant to mutiny, but what showed signs before? For any man that had an eye in his head to see mischief and taking steps accordingly. But this crew, he added, beats me. Captain, said the doctor, with your permission, that's Silver, a very remarkable man. He looked remarkably well from a yard arm, sir, returned the captain. But this took, uh, uh, this don't lead to anything. I see three or four points, and with Mr. Trelawney's permission, I'll name them. Uh, you, sir, the captain, it is for you to speak, said Mr. Trelawney grandly. First point, began Mr. Smollett. We must go on, because we can't turn back. If I gave the word to go about, they would rise at once. Second point, we have time before us, at least until this treasure is found. Third point, there are faithful hands. Now, sir, 
It's got to come to blow sooner or later. What I propose is to uh, take time by the furlock, as the saying is, and come to blow some fine day when they least expect it. We can count, I take it, on your own, on your home servant, Mr. Trelawney? As upon myself, <clears throat> declared the squire. Three, reckoned the captain. Yourselves make seven, counting Hawkins here. Now about the honest hands. Uh, most likely Trelawney's own men, said the doctor. Those he had picked up for himself before he lit on silver. Nay, replied the squire. Hands were one of mine. I did think I could have trusted hands, added uh, the captain. And to think they, they're all Englishmen. Oh, and to think they're all Englishmen, broke out the squire. Uh, God damn it. It keeps going back and forth, so I don't exactly know who's talking, so fuck it. So I could find it in my heart to blow the ship up. Well, gentlemen, said the captain, the best that I can say is not much. We must lay to, if you please, and keep a bright lookout. It's trying on a man I know. It would be pleasanter to come to blows. But there's no help for it till we know our men. Lay to and whistle for a win. That's my view. Jim here, said the doctor, can help us more than anyone. The men are not shy with him, and Jim is a noticing lad. Hawkins, I put prodigious faith in you, added the squire. I began to feel pretty desperate at this, for I felt altogether helpless, and yet by an odd drain of circumstances, it was indeed for me that safety came. In the meantime, talk as we pleased. There were only seven out of the twenty-six of whom we knew we could rely, and out of these seven, one was a boy, so that the grown men on our side were six to their nineteen. That's a... <laughs> the odds are not stacked in their favor as that terrible book franchise uh, once once said. I never actually read those, so I don't know why I'm dumping on it. Are they good? I don't, I don't know why I'm asking. You can't respond. Part three. My short adventure begins. Chapter 13. How my short adventure began. The appearance of the island when I came on deck the next morning was altogether changed. Although the breeze had now utterly ceased, we had made a great deal of way uh, during the night, and were now lying becalmed about half a mile to the southeast of the low eastern coast. Gray-colored woods covered a large part of the surface. This even tint was indeed broken up by streaks of yellow sand break, uh in the lower lands and by the tall trees of the pine family outtopping the others some singly some in clumps but the general coloring was uniform and sad the hills ran up clear above the vegetation in spires of naked rock all were strangely shaped like the spyglass and the spyglass which was by the three or four hundred feet the tallest on the island was likewise the strangest in configuration running up sheer from almost every side and then suddenly cut off at the top like a pedestal to put a statue on the hispaniola was rolling scoopers, scuppers, under in the ocean swell, which I'm pretty sure is the, the rowing thing. The booms were tearing at the blocks, the rudder was banging to and fro, and the whole ship creaking and groaning and jumping like a manufactory. I had to cling tight to the backstay, and the world turned giddily before my eyes, giddily before my eyes, and though I was a good enough sailor when I was on, when I was way on, this standing still and being rolled about like a bottle was a thing I never learned to stand without a qualm, or so, above all in the morning on an empty stomach. Perhaps it was this, perhaps, perhaps it was this, perhaps it was the look of the island with its gray melancholy woods and the wild stone spires, and the surf that we could both see and hear foaming and thundering on the steep beach. At least, although the sun shone bright and hot and the shorebirds were fishing and crying all around us, and you would have thought anyone would have been glad to get to land after being so long at sea, my heart sank, as the saying is, into my boots. And from the first look onward, I hated the very thought of Treasure Island. 
We had a dreary morning's work before us, and there, uh, for there was no sign of any wind. And the boat had to be got out and manned. And the ship warped three or four miles around the corner of the island and up the narrow passage to the haven behind Skeleton Island. I volunteered for one of the boats where I had, of course, no business. The heat was sweltering and the men grumbled fiercely over their work. Anderson was in command of my boat and instead of keeping the crew in order, he grumbled as loud as the worst. Well, he said with an oath, it's not forever. German. I thought this was a very bad sign. For up to that day, the men had gone briskly and willingly about their business, but the very side of the island had relaxed the cords of discipline. All the way in, Long John stood by the steersman and conned the ship. He knew the passage like the palm of his hand, and though the man in chains got everywhere more water than down in the chart, John never hesitated once. There's a strong scour with the head, he said, and this here passage has been dug out in a manner of speaking with a spade. We brought up just where the anchor was in the chart, about a third of a mile from each shore, on the mainland on one side and Skeleton Island on the other. At the bottom was clean sand. The plunge of our anchor sent up cloud of birds wheeling and crying over the woods, but in less than a minute they were down again, and all was once more silent. The place was entirely landlocked, buried in woods, the trees coming right out to the high water, the shores mostly flat, and the hilltops standing round at the distance in a short of amphitheater, one here, one there. Two little rivers, or rather two swamps, emptied out into this pond, as you might call it, and the foliage round that part of the shore had a kind of poisonous brightness. From the ship we could see nothing of the house or stockade, for there were quite buried among the trees, and if it had not been for the chaunt of their companion, we might have been the first of uh, we might have been the first that had ever anchored there since the island arose out of the seas probably two years ago. There was not a breath of air moving, nor a sound, but that of the surf booming half a mile away along the beaches and against the rocks outside. A peculiar stagnant smell hung over the anchorage, a smell of sodden leaves and rotting tree trunks. I observed the doctor sniffing and sniffing like someone tasting a bad egg. I don't know about treasure, he said, but I'll stake my wig, there's fever here. If the conduct of uh, the men had been alarming in the boat, it became truly threatening when they had come aboard. Um, they lay about the deck growling together and talk. The slightest order was received with a black look and grudgingly and carelessly obeyed. Even the honest hands must have caught the infection, for there was not one man aboard to mend another. Mutiny, it was uh, plain, hung over us like a thundercloud. And it was not only we of the cabin party who perceived the danger. Long John was hard at work going from group to group, spending himself in good advice, and as, for example, no man could have shown any shown a better. He fairly outstripped himself in willingness and civility. He was all smiles to everyone. An order was given, John would be on his crutch in an instant with the cheeriest, Oh, I saw! in the world. And when there was nothing else to do, he kept on, kept up one song after another, as if to conceal the discontent of the rest. Well, he's playing the longest of long cons, so I'm not surprised. Of all the gloomy features of that gloomy afternoon, this obvious anxiety on the part of Long John appeared the worst. We held a council in the cabin. Sir, said the captain, if I risk another order, the whole ship will come about our ears by the run. You see, sir, here it is. I get a rough answer, do I not? Well, if I speak back, pikes will be going on two shakes. If I don't, silver will see there's something under that, and the game's up. Now we only have one man to rely on. <coughs> and who's that? asked the squire. Silver, sir, returned the captain. He's as anxious as you and I to smother things up. This is a tiff. He'll soon talk him, talk him out of it if he added the chance. What I propose to do is to give him the chance. Let's allow the men an afternoon ashore. If they all go, why we'll fight the ship. Um, if they not if they none of them go, well then we hold the cabin, and God defend the right. 
If some go, you mark my words, silver will bring them aboard again as mild as lambs. So it was decided. Loaded pistols were served out to all the sure men. Hunter, Joyce, and Redruth were taken to our confidence and received the news with less surprise and a better spirit than we had looked for. And the captain went on the deck and advised and addressed the crew. My lads, he said, we have had a hot day and we are all tired and out of sorts. A turn ashore will hurt nobody. The boats are still in the water and you take the gigs. And as many as please may go ashore for the afternoon. I'll fire a gun half an hour before sundown. I believe the silly fellows must have thought they would break their shins over treasure as soon as they were landed. For they all came out of their sulks in a moment and gave a cheer that started the echo in a faraway hill and sent birds once more flying and squalling around the anchorage. The captain was too bright uh, to be in the way. He whipped out of sight in a moment, leaving Silver to arrange the party, and I fancied it was as well he did so. Had he been on deck, he could no longer so much as have pretended not to understand the situation. It was as plain as day. Silver was the captain, and a mighty rebellious crew he had of it, the honest hands, and I was soon to see it proved there were such on boards. Must have been very stupid fellows. Rather, I suppose the truth of, of was this, that all hands were disaffected by the example of the ringleaders. Only some more, some less, and a few, being good fellows in the main, could neither be led nor driven any further. It is one thing to be idle and skulk, and quite another to take a ship and murder a number of innocent men. At last, however, the party was made up. Six fellows were to stay on board, and the remaining thirteen, including Silver, began to, to embark. Then it was um, then it was that there came into my head the first of the mad notion that contributed so much to save our lives. If six men were left by Silver, it was plain our party could not take and fight the ship. Since only six were left, it was equally plain that the captain party had no present need for my assistance. It occurred to me at once to go ashore. In a jiffy, I had slipped over the side and curled up in the foresheets of the nearest boat, and almost at the same moment, she shoved off. No one took notice of me, only the boat oar saying, Saw you, Jim. Keep your head down. But Silver from the other boat looked sharply over and called out to know if that were me. And from that moment, I began to regret what I had done. God damn it. Is that you, Jim? Keep your head down. But Silver from the other boat looked sharply over, called out to know that if it were that if that were me, then I began to regret what I'd done. Why'd you get in the fucking boat? Anyway, the crews raced for the beach, but the boat I was in was having some start in being at the once the lighter and better manned, shot far ahead of her consort, and the bow had struck among the shoreside trees, and I caught a branch, swung myself out, and plunged into the nearest thicket while Silver and the rest were still hundreds yards behind him. Jim! Jim! I heard him shouting. But you may suppose I paid no heed. Jumping and ducking and breaking through, I ran straight before my nose, um, before my nose till I could run no longer. So he fucking ran ashore and fled? The fuck? Jesus, Jim. Chapter 14. The first blow. I was so pleased at having given the slip to Long John that I began to enjoy myself and look around me with some interest on the strange land that I was in. I had crossed a marshy tract full of willows, bulrushes, and odd outlandish swampy trees, and now I had come out upon the skirts of an open piece of undulating sandy country about a mile long, dotted with a few pines and a great number of contorted trees, not unlike the oak in growth, but pale in foliage like willows. On the far side of the open stood one of the hills with two quaint craggy peaks shining vividly in the sun. I now felt, for the first time, the joy of exploration. The isle was uninhibited, um, uninhabited. My shipmates I had left behind, and nothing lived in front of me but the dumb brutes and fowls. I turned hither and thither among the trees. Here and there were flowering plants unknown to me, and here and there I saw a snake. One raised his head up from the ledge of rock and hissed at me with a noise not unlike the spinning of a top. Little did I suppose that he was a deadly enemy, and that noise was the famous rattle. 
And then I came to a long thicket of these oak-like trees, live or evergreen oaks, I heard afterwards they should be called, which grew uh, low along the sand like brambles, their boughs curiously twisted, the foliage compact like thatch. The thicket stretched down from the top of one of the sandy knolls, spreading and growing taller as it went until it reached the margin of the, of the broad, reedy fen, through which the nearest of the little river soaked its way into the anchorage. The marsh was steaming in the hot, in the strong sun, and the outlines of the spyglass trembled through the haze. All at once there began to go a sort of bustle among the bulrushes. A wild duck flew up with a quack, uh, another followed. And soon the whole surface of the marsh, a great cloud of birds, hung screaming and circling in the air. I judged at once that somehow some of my shipmates must be drawing near along the border of the fence. Nor was I deceived, for soon I heard the very distant low tones of a human voice, which, as I continued to give ear, grew steadily louder and nearer. This put me in a great fear, and I crawled under the cover of the nearest live oak and squatted there, hearkening as silent as a mouse. Another voice answered, and then the first voice, which I never recognized to be Silver's, once more took up the story and ran along for a while uh, in a stream, only now and again interrupted by another. By the sound, they must have been talking earnestly and almost fiercely, but no distinct word came to my hearing. At last, the speakers uh, seemed to have paused and perhaps to have sat down, for not only did they cease to draw any nearer, but the birds themselves began to grow more quiet and settled again in their places in the swamp. And now I began to feel that I was neglecting my business, and that since I had been so German, foolhardy, as to come ashore with these desperados, the least I could do was to overhear them at their council, and that my plain and obvious duty was to draw closer as I could manage under the favorable ambush of the crashing trees. I could tell the direction of the speakers uh, pretty exactly, not only by the sound of their voices, but by the behavior of the few birds that still hung an alarm above the heads of the intruders. Crawling on all fours, I made steadily but slowly towards them, till at last, raising my head to an aperture among the leaves, I could see clear down into the little green dell beside the marsh, and closely set about with trees, where long John Silver and another of the crew stood face to face in conversation. The sun beat full upon them. Silver had thrown his hat beside him on the ground, and his great smooth blonde face, all shining with heat, was lifted to the other man in a kind of appeal. Mate, he was saying, it's because I think gold's dusty. Gold dust and you may like that. If I hadn't took you like a pinch, don't you think I'd have been here, I've warned you? All's up, you can't make no mend. It's to save your neck, that's a speaking. And if one of the wild's onions knew it, where I'd be, Tom? Now tell me, where would I be? Silver, said the other man. I observed he was not only red in the face, but he spoke as hoarse as a crow, and his voice shook too like a taut rope. Silver, he said, you're old, and you're honest, or has the name for it, and you've money too, which lots of poor sailors have it, and you're brave, or I'm mistook. And will you tell me you let yourself be led away with that kind of a mess of swabs, not you? As sure as God sees me, I'd sooner lose my hand. If I turn again my duty, and then all of a sudden he was interrupted by a noise. I found uh, one of the... I had found one of the honest hands. Well, here at the same moment came another. Uh, came news of another. Far away out of the marsh there arose, all of a sudden, a sound like a cry of anger, then another uh, on the back of it, and then one horrid, long, drawn-out scream. The rocks of the spyglass re-echoed to, to a score of times. The whole troop of marsh birds rose again, darkening heaven with a simultaneous whirr, and long after the death yell uh, was still ringing in my brain, silence had re-established its empire, and only the rustle of the re-descending birds and the boom of distant surges disturbed, disturbed the languor of the afternoon. Tom had leapt at the sound like a horse at a spur, but Silver had not winked an eye. He stood where he was, resting lightly on his crutch, watching his companion like a snake about to spring. John! cried the sailor, stretching out his hand. Hands off! cried Silver, leaping back yard. And it, and it seemed to me with the speed and security of a trained gymnast. Uh, hands off, if you like, John Silver, 
said the other. It is a black conscience that uh, can make you feared of me. But in heaven's name, tell me, what was that? What? Returned Silver smiling away, but warier than ever, his eyes mere pinpoints in his big face, but gleaming like crumbs of glass. What? I reckon that'll be Alan. At this point, Tom flashed out like a hero. Alan! He cried. Then rest his soul for a true seaman. As for you, John Silver, long you've been a mate of mine, but you're a mate of mine no more. If I die like a dog, I'll die in my duty. You've killed Alan, haven't you? Kill me too if you can, but I defies you. And with that, his brave fellow turned his back directly on the cook and set off walking for the beach. He was not destined to go far. With a cry, John seized the branch of a tree, whipped the crutch out of his armpit, and sent that uncouth missile hurling through the air. It struck poor Tom point foremost with the stunning violence right between the shoulders and the middle of his back. His hands flew up and he gave a sort of gasp and fell. Whether he were injured much or little, none could tell. Like, uh, like enough to judge from the sound, his back was broke on the spot. But, wow, seriously? Long John threw the crutch so fucking strong he broke this dude's back with it? Jesus Christ. But he had no time given to him to recover. Silver, agile as a monkey, even without leg or crutch, was on top of him the next moment and had twice buried his knife up to the hilt in that defenseless body. From my place of ambush, I could hear him pant aloud as he struck the blows. I do not know what it was rightly is to faint, but I do know that for the next little while, the whole world swam away from me before, swam away uh, from before me in a whirling mist. Silver and the birds, and the tall spyglass hilltop going round and round, topsy-turvy before my eyes, all manner of bells ringing and distant voices shouting in my ears. When I came again to myself, the monster had pulled himself together, his crutch under his arm, his hat under his, upon his head. Just before him, Tom lay motionless upon the, upon the sword, but the murderer minded him not a whit cleansing his bloodstained knife while upon the wisp of grasp. Um, everything else was unchanged. The sun was still shining mercilessly on the steaming marsh and the tall pinnacle of the mountain and I could scarcely persuade myself that murder had been actually done and a human life cruelly cut short a moment since before my house. But now John put his hand into his pocket, brought out a whistle, and blew upon it several modulated blasts that rang far across the heated air. I could not tell, of course, the meaning of the signal, but it awoke, uh, my, but it instantly awoke my fears. More men would be coming. I might be discovered. I'd already slain two honest people after Tom and Alan. Might not I come next? And so I began to extricate myself and crawl back again with what speed and silence I could manage to the more open portion of the woods. As I did so, I could hear hails coming and going between the old buccaneer and his comrades, and the sound of danger lent me wings. As soon as I was clear of the thicket, I ran as I had never ran before, scarce minding the direction of my flight. So long as it was... So long as it led me from the murderers, and I ran, fear grew and grew upon me until it turned into a kind of frenzy. Indeed, could anyone be more lost than I? When the gun fired, how should I dare to go down to the boats among the fiends, still smoking from their crimes? Would not the first of them who saw me wring my neck like a snipe's? Would not my absence itself be an evidence to them of my alarm and therefore of my fatal knowledge? It was all over, I thought. Goodbye to the Hispaniola. Goodbye to the squire, the doctor, the captain. There was nothing left for me but death by starvation or death by the hands of mutineers. All this while, I say, I was still running, and without taking any notice, I had drawn near the foot of the little hill with the two peaks and had got into a part of the island where the live oaks grew more wildly apart and seemed more like a forest trees in their bearings and dimensions. Mingled with these were a few scattered pines, some 50, some near 70 feet high. The air, too, smelt more freshly than down beside the marsh. And here a fresh alarm brought me to a standstill with a thumping heart.